0: following is a sermon preached at Grace Church in Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Good morning, everyone. So good to be together to open up the Word of God. And we're thankful that you're here, and if you're new to Grace, we'd love to meet you. It's Easter today, and Easter is probably uh, the prime time all year, uh, besides Christmas or a funeral, when people are most open to the gospel, and people want spiritual significance, they're they're looking for something, and they want something to put their hopes upon, they want to pin their hopes on something. Even this last week, as the Notre Dame Cathedral burned, there was someone in Scotland who thought that they saw an image of Jesus in the fire. And that might sound silly, but people are looking for things and A lot of times they're looking for answers and they think they see those answers. Our minds can play tricks on us. That's why we need the objective word of God. That's why we need the the written word of God. And The Bible tells us that, that God has revealed himself and his will and his ways in his written word. Hebrews 1 tells us this. That in the past, he spoke through the prophets in many portions and in many ways. That's the Old Testament. And then it says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, in Jesus Christ. That's the New Testament. There is a golden gospel thread throughout the Bible. It runs throughout the entire Bible. But the New Testament shows in living color exactly what happened. That Jesus Died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he appeared to many, that he ascended to the Father, that even now he is interceding for us. And he has promised to return. And he is going to return with judgment for some and blessing for others. He will set up his kingdom, he will reign forever. And the thing that we need to be most concerned about is Christ's blessing and his judgment. Salvation or condemnation. Humanity divided, two groups, no middle ground. And the burning question really is how can we be saved from our sin and shame? And The answer is in the word of God. It's not in our eyes playing tricks on us thinking we see images in a burning inferno. What we see is that our sin brings us shame, but the Son of God brings salvation. And so if you're able, I want to invite you to stand up with me right now. At at Grace, we stand to read the Word of God in, in honor of God and His Word. And I'm going to be reading Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. And it's about calling on Christ and how Jesus takes us from sin and shame To salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Lord, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. We pray, Lord, that your will would be done during this time, that you would do whatever you want in our hearts, all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There was a startling announcement on a website in 2018. It was the Atheist Foundation of Australia website announcing this. We regret to advise you that the 2018 Global Atheist Convention, entitled Reason to Hope, has been canceled. The reason why? Not enough sign-ups. Now they were selling their atheistic hope, which is really an oxymoron, and no one was buying it. And it wasn't for lack of effort on their part. They had a a headliner that was a noted atheist, Richard Dawkins. He's the author of a book called The Devil's Chaplain, Reflections on Hope, Lies, Science, and Love. And this is what Dawkins has to say about what we're celebrating today. It's a horrible idea, he says, that God, this paragon of wisdom and knowledge and power, couldn't think of a better way to forgive our sins than to come down to earth in his alter ego as his son and have himself hideously tortured and executed so he could forgive himself. You know, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Here is a very intelligent man who is morally bankrupt. But we know better. We know better. Because today, believers worship the risen Christ in hope. In hope. You wake up Easter morning to headlines such as these. This happened today. Easter Sunday bloodshed. Simultaneous blasts at multiple churches and hotels rock Sri Lanka. Death toll climbs past 200. That happened today. So we know something is terribly wrong, don't we? We know that we live in a chaotic world and it is a world of sin and of death and of shame and of depravity. There are a lot of ideas and philosophies that are getting shopped around and are offered as a cure with little to no evidence. We live in a confusing, pluralistic time with a multitude of misleading ideas, and they cannot all be true. If Christianity is true, all others are false. Paul wrote Romans in a, in a similar, a confusing time. In a climate where the Greeks and the Romans took polytheism to absurd, uh, shocking extremes. Skepticism infected the masses. Some people followed the Stoics. Some people followed Plato. The Stoics denied natural feelings. Uh, They gave in to blind fate. Uh, They had no hope of the afterlife. And Plato just said, well, all religions are just different versions of the same truth. Then you had the Jews, had the form of religion, but they were devoid of the Spirit. You had Pharisees following formalities, you had Sadducees who were unhappy skeptics, you had the Essenes who were enthusiastic mystics. And in that time, much like ours, people wanted something better than what reason or tradition or pagan philosophers or Jewish tradition could offer. Reminds me of when Jesus saw the multitudes in Matthew chapter 9. It says that they were harassed and downcast. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And it says that he felt compassion on them. They needed rest. And so in God's perfect timing, when the gospel came, he had already prepared many hearts to receive it. He had already opened hearts to hear the gospel message. And God alone opens hearts to the gospel. If you came in here today, and you're listening to this sermon, and you came in with a hard heart towards Jesus and the gospel, and you're only here to make your family happy, but you really don't believe what I'm preaching, I just want to say this. It very well could be that God has orchestrated the events of your life to be right here, right now, listening to this sermon, and even though you don't know it yet, God may open your heart to the gospel truth and that you would be saved even today. We're in Romans. Romans is about God's righteousness revealed in the gospel. And before we dive in, I just want to say something that hopefully will be uh, reassuring, but maybe it's an Easter exhortation uh, for believers. See, today, we can say with confidence Christ is risen. risen indeed. So some people think that they're cheated if they don't get to say that on Easter. But you know what? It's not in the Bible. Some of the words are in the Bible. But what it is, is is a way to remind ourselves. We know that Jesus rose from the dead a long, long time ago. And he is still risen. And he's still alive. And he's coming back with all the promises he made. But here's the thing. I want you to remember something. And I don't want you to remember you're wavering or you're wondering about the truth or whether it's true or not, and even you're wandering. Because I want you to remember something. On that first Easter, they weren't going around saying Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. What they were doing is looking for a dead body. All of Jesus' followers. They were downcast, they were depressed, they were demoralized. They thought that he had died and and then just stayed dead. And when they came to the tombs, when they came to the tomb, people were running and looking. What they're thinking is, where did they take the body? And I just want you to remember that. They thought the body had been stolen. They they thought that they were supposed to be looking for a dead body. And everyone pretty much had to be reminded. Now look, you look great today. It's Easter. It's It's a high point of the year. Today's Easter. Tomorrow isn't. And you might not be so excited about he is risen. He is risen indeed tomorrow morning when you get to work or when you get to school. Or when you just wake up. Because every one of Jesus' followers had to have an aha moment. You go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you know what you notice? All of them were expecting a dead body, and they thought that the body had been stolen. So they had to get this aha moment, which was, oh, it really happened. Oh, oh, it really happened. And they had to get it in pretty dramatic ways, like from an angel of the Lord. And by the way, in Luke chapter 24, verse 34, where you read these words, the Lord has risen indeed, which is where we get that phrase that we like to say, that was a person who had to be met on the road to Emmaus after Jesus rose from the dead and have to actually bump into Jesus, resurrected Jesus, and not know it was him and and have to be reminded about what the Bible said about Jesus, by Jesus, by Jesus. I just want to, to bring that to your remembrance here, to your, I just want you to be conscious of this, because we need to know the truth, and we need to, to, to be reassured of the truth, but we also need to live the truth, not just today, but every day of our life, if we're a follower of Christ. The context of Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 13, is salvation, And and it's the idea that our sin brings shame, but the Son brings salvation. And in these three verses, you see three life-changing statements about salvation. Let's look at the first. It's in verse 11. There is hope for whoever believes in Christ. There is hope for whoever believes in Christ. Now, false hope sinks us all the time. False hopes shame us all the time. And what happens when you pin your hopes on something that is just going to crumble, you realize the shame of it. If your eyes have been open to it at all, you realize that you have a problem, and the problem is your sin. And by the way, if you say, well, can you tell me where in Romans it tells me that that I'm a sinner? Well, I'll point you to Romans chapter 1, and you start reading. You won't go very far before you see that you're a sinner. And then you just go on to Romans 2. And then Romans 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 8 and 9, 10 and onward. And every chapter is going to tell you that. And every chapter is going to tell you you need a Savior. And the Savior is Jesus. Some of us, it, it, you know, our heads are harder than others and we really need it to get pounded in. Uh, verse 11 says For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. I love it. You're reading the Bible, and it tells you that the Scripture says. You're reading the Bible, the Scriptures, and it says the Scripture says. It's about to quote the Old Testament in Isaiah 28, verse 16, specifically. But when it says the Scripture says, what it means is God says. You have God's authority on it. It's perfect, and it's powerful. And he's quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 16. And if you've been going through Romans with us, what you realize is chapter 9, verse 33 just quoted that verse and you go on to first peter chapter 2 verse 16 you're like that same verse gets quoted there this must be a really important verse and here's what isaiah 28 16 says thus says the lord behold i am the one who has laid as a foundation in zion a stone a tested stone a precious cornerstone a sure foundation Whoever believes will not be in haste or disturbed. And by the way, in case you think this was just a New Testament idea, salvation has always been by grace through faith in the Messiah. It has always been by faith in that stone, Isaiah's tested stone. This is the prophecy of the coming Messiah. They should have recognized. Isaiah 49 verse 23 says, All who hopefully look... Or wait for me, and this is the Messiah speaking, will not be put to shame. But everyone who believes, that's the one who believes in Christ. Uh, This is a universal gospel call. Not everyone is saved, but everyone needs to hear the gospel. And belief is trust. It's confident reliance upon and it says that you will not be ashamed Now that ashamed is a future expression Looking forward to the day of judgment When the hope of those who have trusted in Christ Will be proven to be true People will be telling you As you're living your life now As a follower of Christ Well that's not true You're putting your hopes on, on silly things And their myths and what have you But not ashamed means in the future On the day of judgment Your hope will be proven true Everyone who believes in him, in who? In Jesus, the one we're celebrating today, the one that believers know is with them every single moment. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, saving faith is trusting Christ. Romans 10 has been telling us this, that, that The law and the gospel are being contrasted and the impossibility of righteousness by the law and the availability of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. The gospel is God's power to save, not conditions we're supposed to meet. Last week we looked at verses 8 through 10 and the, the one who believes and confesses that Jesus is Lord, the resurrected Lord, will be saved. God saves by the preaching of the word. God saves through the yielding response of faith heartfelt conviction leading to verbal confession where you publicly declare your relationship with the Lord. You need to be instructed by, with this and, and assured by it that if you believe God raised Jesus from the dead and, and, and appointed him or crowned him Lord, Lord over all, and that he is the only way of salvation and that he is the promised deliverer because of your sin, due to your sin, and you believe in him, you will not be put to shame. On the day of judgment. Now, as you go along in your life, you might get ridiculed and put to shame or humiliated because of your faith in Christ every day, maybe. But you will not be put to shame on the day of judgment. In Hebrew, a person who was put to shame was someone who was repulsive to other people. Like, this happens today. If someone is humiliated or ashamed, like, everyone backs away and, like, Let's let them just go, you know, and no one wants to be around you if you're humiliated. Whoever trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation will not be eternally defeated. Psalm 46 tells us that the Lord is our refuge and our strength. Exodus 33, Moses was hidden In the cleft of the rock, uh, God hides our soul in the cleft of the rock. It's the idea of of trusting God Almighty and his provision. A a believer trusts in Christ, and that's what protects your soul. Your safety is not in your ability to protect yourself or some security system that you can set up. It is in the Lord. It is in the strong tower that he is. It is in the shield he is, the, the fortress that he is, the rock that he is. Verse John 2.28 tells us that if you abide in him, if you trust in him, if you remain under him, you will not shrink in shame at his appearing. The people that will shrink in shame at Christ's appearing are those who will be under his judgment on that day. He died for our sin, and our sin brings us shame. All of us, we live with things that we're ashamed of. Even as believers, you go, you think back, and and you just have those moments of shame, even for sins that you know are forgiven by Jesus, but you just, you're wrecked by it. It, Your sins sometimes pursue you, they drag you down. I think of David writing Psalm 51, just writing a a psalm that just says, Lord, I have done shameful sin, and, and I need your forgiveness. I need your cleansing. And here's Here's what you know if you're a believer in Jesus. Christ took your shame. Took your shame at the cross. He he took it upon himself. So what that means is that what causes you grief and what causes you sleepless nights and what causes you torment in your soul and embarrassment even and, and worry cost Christ his life. He died for you. And one person wrote it this way. He said, everyone has fears and courage, grief and guilt, joy and sorrow, anxiety and anger, and that deep age-old hunger which the bread of this world cannot satisfy, and a thirst which the waters of this life cannot quench. How did Jesus put it? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Written in the word of God. There was a fourth century person named Ambrosiaster who captured this idea of hope for whoever believes in Christ very well. Here's what he said. On the day of judgment, everything will be examined. All false opinions and teachings will be overthrown. And those who believe in Christ will rejoice. It will be revealed that what they believed is true. And what was thought to be foolish was wise. Because verse 11 tells us there is hope for whoever believes in Christ. Move on with me to verse 12. The second statement about salvation. Christ grants his riches to all who call on him. Jesus grants his riches to all who call on him verse 12 says for there is no distinction between jew and gentile between jew and greek for the same lord is lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him now we read the bad news in romans chapter 3 verses 22 and 23 and it it said there that there is no distinction but the bad news was this there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god that all people are guilty and headed for hell and all will be judged on precisely the same grounds. There's no distinction among people. You don't run to Christ for refuge and salvation. You will be judged for your sin. No distinction. It doesn't matter your social standing. It doesn't matter your cultural background. It just isn't going to matter. It's going to matter what did you do with Jesus. But here's the good news in Romans 10:12. There is no distinction when it comes to receiving the riches that God grants on to those who believe in Jesus. That all who realize they're in trouble because of their sin and run to Christ for refuge, believing the gospel message, there's no distinction So whether how good you've been, how bad you've been, what side of the tracks you grew up on, what race you are, what economic level you're at, what social status you have, none of that matters at all. Isn't that awesome? There's no distinction. And the same Lord is Lord over all. If anyone is saved, they'll be saved by Jesus. If anyone is saved, they'll be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Righteousness is available to all through faith in Christ alone. There's no other way to be saved. God is going to make no distinction there. You either believe Jesus or you don't. But what do we do? We go around making distinctions all the time, don't we? Uh, Some of you made a distinction this morning when you looked in the mirror and you didn't like the way you looked. Or you came to church and you said, why did she wear that dress? Or why did that guy wear that jacket? Or why did that person look at me like that? We make all sorts of distinctions between people. Welsh doctor turned preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorites, preached once in Oxford, England to a group of students. And after the sermon, there was a question and answer time, and one student got up. It was a brash, bold, kind of arrogant student, and he, he spoke with, with skill as a debater, and he first paid Dr. Lloyd-Jones a compliment, a few compliments, and then he said this, I have a problem with the sermon you just preached, and he said this, it could have been delivered to a group of farm workers and any, or anyone else. Basically, like, how dare you come to Oxford and speak that way to us? And everyone laughed. The whole crowd laughed. And Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, you know, I see Oxford students as ordinary, miserable sinners like everybody else. With the same needs as farm workers or anybody else. And so I preached to you this way on purpose. We make distinctions. Uh, differences between people, separations, and that can lead to divisions of people standing apart and, and dissension and stumbling blocks, hindrances. None of those things fosters fellowship in the body of Christ. We make distinctions, but guess what? Good news. Christ grants his riches to those who are humble and broken over their sin, he doesn't make you money rich, he makes you faith rich. At the cross, he reversed the curse he, and he bestows his riches, his salvation on all who believe in him, all who call on him. And here's the great news if you're a believer today. Jesus delights to grant his riches to all who believe. Which means, If you're a believer today, Jesus is delighting to grant you all his riches. Romans 9:23 says, He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. If you're a Christian, you're a vessel of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Second Corinthians 8:9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty would become rich. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2.7 says, So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3.8 says, To me, Paul says, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So if you have been blessed with the riches of Christ, they are immeasurable. Romans eleven thirty three. 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. What a beautiful Savior we have. Giving glorious riches to all he has chosen without distinction. And Christ doesn't bait and switch you By the way, there was a church today that gave away a free car on Easter. Unless you think, hey, maybe I can get in on that deal. It was out of state. Don't worry about it. It's already been given. Someone already won it. There was a distinction made. Someone got the free car. But it's nothing like the church in 2010 that gave away $2 million in prizes on Easter. 12 cars, laptops, the whole deal, and every person in attendance got a gift bag worth $300 of good stuff. You're like, why can't I get in on that, right? We, you just gave me pancakes and tamales. I mean, what more could you want though, right? Most importantly, you get Jesus and the gospel and the word of God Jesus is more precious than silver. Jesus is more precious than gold. Jesus is more beautiful than diamonds. And nothing we desire compares with him. Jesus is God's greatest gift. He he meets our greatest need. He solved our greatest problem. He made the greatest sacrifice. He brings God greatest glory. There is hope for whoever believes in Christ. If that is you, there is hope for you. And then Christ grants his riches to all who will call upon him. And it's all building to verse 13. This third statement of salvation. Verse 13, Christ universally offers salvation. Everyone doesn't get saved, but it is open to everyone. Whoever will call on him will be saved. Whoever. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He is quoting Joel chapter 2, verse 32. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? That is a really important biblical term, phrase, call on the name of the Lord. What does it mean? What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? I mean, it's really important, right? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does it mean? By the way, calling on the name of the Lord is what everything in chapter 10 builds up to and points back to. Verse 13 is a crescendo, and it's in the context of salvation, but not just salvation, but in the context of people rejecting Christ for salvation. So if that's you today and you're rejecting Christ for salvation, you're going to want to listen up to this one. But if you are a believer, you're going to also want to listen up because it Calling on the name of the Lord means everything about the Christian life. To call on literally means to pray to God and, and to, to trust him in prayer. You think of Jeremiah thirty three thirty three, call to me and I will answer you. I think of Acts chapter 7, Stephen calling on the Lord before he dies for his faith in Christ. Let's look at it in the Old Testament. Calling on the name of the Lord is a big Old Testament concept. 184 times talking about calling on God in the Old Testament. And it means four things. In the, in the Old Testament economy, here's what it meant. First, to call on God and ask him to meet a need. Okay, you're aware of a need and you're going to God and asking him to meet it. Secondly, you're addressing God with special terminology. You're, you're using his, his name, which is very important, who he is. And third, you're requesting a higher judicial authority to review a decision of a lower court. So like people are telling you that what you're believing isn't true and you go to God and say, I'm gonna appeal to God on this. This is like Paul appealing to Caesar. This is like us appealing to the Supreme Court. And fourth, it means to call someone as a witness. Now, when did calling on the name of the Lord start? In the Bible, Genesis chapter four, verse 26. That verse tells us, it was at this time that people began to call on the name of the Lord. And then you have in, in Genesis 12, verse 8, Abram builds an altar to the Lord and calls upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 13, 4, he journeys back to that same altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. In Genesis chapter 21, he calls upon the name of the Lord and he calls him God eternal. Then in Genesis chapter 26, Isaac builds an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. Then in 1 Kings, verse 18, Elijah, who's having this, you know, whose God is greater contest with the prophets of Baal, you know, is is the one true God greater or false gods greater? And he says, I will call on the name of the Lord my God. In 1 Chronicles 16, verse 8, he says, give thanks to the Lord and call upon the name of the Lord. And then the Psalms is very rich in this phrase Call upon the name of the Lord. In Psalm 105, verse 1, it says, Sing hallelujah, acknowledge the Lord, and call upon his name. In Psalm 116, verse 4, On the name of the Lord I called, and he rescued my soul. In Psalm 116, verse 13, it says, A cup of salvation I received and called upon the name of the Lord. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 5, I call on your name, O Lord, from the deepest pit. In Joel chapter 2, verse 32, which is quoted here in Romans 10, as well as Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, it says this call upon the name of the Lord and serve him, literally, worship him. But in all these places, call upon the name of the Lord occurs in the context of worship. This is why it is so important. It's it's about building an altar to God. In the Old Testament, it's about God-centered remembrance of his promises. You look at Psalm 105, and it ties into Romans 10 very nicely. The heart and mouth are engaged, expressing allegiance to God, devotion to God, worship of God, about singing praises, about telling all his wondrous works, uh, glorying in his holy name. Psalm 116 is about proclaiming salvation. 1 Chronicles 16, the context is a community worship celebration. Uh, The ark had been brought back into Jerusalem. David blesses the people in the name of the Lord and has the Levites worship God and give thanks and call upon the Lord's name. He exhorts the people to worship God as the true God instead of worshiping idols. It's like when Paul said to the Thessalonian believers, I'm praising God that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now when Joel quotes When Joel says, call upon the name of the Lord, he is describing something significant. He is describing the salvation of a remnant of people who were called by God and would survive the day of the Lord. Joel envisioned a time when this remnant would be saved from judgment because they called on the name of the Lord. And Paul is saying in Romans 10, Jesus is that Lord. Jesus is that Lord. In Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9, he sees a day where God will gather the nations for judgment. And he will even miraculously change the tongues of the people so that they might call on the name of the Lord. And it says that they would serve him under a yoke. That is significant. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Laboring and heavy laden about what? With your sin, your sin is weighing you down. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls in me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So the Old Testament is very rich with it, but the New Testament is rich with it as well because in the New Testament, when you see that phrase calling on the name of the Lord, guess who it refers to exclusively? You want to take a wild guess? Always the right answer. Yes. Jesus. Jesus is the right answer. It's always applied and only applied to Jesus. So this was the invocation of early Christian worship. It became shorthand for worshiping Jesus as God. That's important. Jesus is Lord, is saying Jesus is Yahweh, Jesus is God almighty. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, it says, To the church of God, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. 2 Timothy 2.22, calling on the Lord from a pure heart. Remember, you're calling on his name, who he is, his identity. He is God Almighty. To call on his name means to praise his name. Not just a verbal devotion of yours that is done in private, but it is a community of believers doing this together, worshiping the Lord, praising Jesus in community. So, good job, church. This is what you're doing today. You're identifying with those who trust Christ, and and there is no ethnic barrier. There is no social barrier. There is no economic barrier that bars you access to doing this you can get barred access you can get banned from lots of places a lot of people make a distinction about what you look like where you came from how much money you have and what have you but everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved no matter your past no matter your present people i think like to tell people that you need to like clean yourself up before you come to Christ. No. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Let him do the cleanup. Whoever depends on the Lord and not themselves receives salvation. Imagine that you're sick with a rare disease. Disease. And, and you spend years, tons of money going from doctor to doctor to doctor and you're trying to find a cure and, and no one can figure it out. And then they tell you this. You know, you're going to need to do this on your own. Treat yourself. How cruel, right? Most religions say essentially the same thing. Do it on your own. But not the God of the Bible. Not God Almighty. Jesus saves whoever calls on him. Psalm 3 says salvation is of the Lord. It's from the Lord. And he doesn't need outside help. And he doesn't need your help. Jesus risen from the dead. That's the basis for our new life. It's the basis for our hope. It's the good news that we preach, the resurrection. Romans 1.4 says, Jesus appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. I love in Acts chapter 10, uh, God sends Peter uh, to talk to some Gentiles. And Peter opens his mouth and says this, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened. They put him to death, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There you have it. Want the gospel in a nutshell? It's Jesus died for you. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus paid the penalty you deserved. If you fail to understand this, you will not be saved. Biological life requires air, about 80% nitrogen, about 20% oxygen. Or you die. Take a deep breath real quick. Ah, We're alive. But eternal life requires faith in Jesus Christ. Crucified, risen, reigning, and returning. Or you will be under God's wrath forever. You will either have glorious hope or gruesome ruin. So here's what I would say to you today. Transfer all your hope from your hands into Christ's. Anyone can do it. No distinction, level ground at the foot of the cross. Everyone, good or bad, who calls on the name of the Lord, you recognize who Jesus is, you will be saved. You'll be blessed forever by God. John 1.12 said, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You need to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Make a dramatic switch of allegiance Confess Jesus is Lord. Rank him above all else. Cease to be your own master. Become his bond slave. Rest your weary soul on Christ. Christ meets you at your point of need. We are guilty before God. Our sins brought us shame. We hide our faces from God. We live in fear of punishment. And Jesus paid the price to set us free From guilt. At the cross he bore our shame. He conquered death and fear. He rose victorious. This is what we're celebrating today, folks. And this is what Christians celebrate every single day. That the innocent one took our guilt. That the honored one took our shame. That the powerful one, the all-powerful one, took our fear so that we, the guilty, could be innocent. So that we, the shamed, could be honored guests. At his table, so that we, the fearful, could be empowered to live this life. Turn from sin and call on him. When you have Christ by grace through faith, you've received a free gift, the gift of God, which is eternal life, in Jesus Christ our Lord, then you are a Christian. Do not doubt it. Faith in Christ redeems you from sin and death and hell and gives you strength to overcome. And you do not become sinless. You could ask any Christian in this, in this place. You do not become sinless. But you should sin less. Forgiveness is not a cure-all. You, you must trust the indwelling Spirit's power. Calling on the name of the Lord isn't just initially for forgiveness of sins. And this is where every Christian needs to really stand up and take notice. It continues through your life. Well, you profess your desire to worship Christ every day. Jesus as Lord, it makes a huge difference. It marks you because you believe in Jesus, it's total surrender. And it's not total surrender one time 15 years ago, it's every single day. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Uh, Believe there is not shallow, it is not just when it's convenient. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that our ambition must be to please him. Jesus must be number one. Jesus must be preeminent in your life. We have five kids, and when my youngest, Sophia, was younger, much younger. She's 16 now, so when she was much younger, I used to say this to her. Who's your number one guy? I still ask her this, too. I said, who's your number one guy? And I want her to say, Jesus is my number one guy. Jesus is the number one guy. And then I'll say, who's your number two guy? For the longest time, it was you, Daddy. And then at some point, she started kind of saying, well, it's Mikey Bo, which was her older brother, Michael. But I would say, you know, Sophia, who's your number one guy? And I always want to hear Jesus first. And by the way, there's been times when I'm way down the list and maybe not even on it, okay? But I want to make sure that Jesus is preeminent in her heart. And that he has the supreme affection of her heart. And when Christ is preeminent in your heart and life, when he has the supreme affection of your heart, life just takes on a fuller dimension. So if you're professing faith in Christ today, it has to affect every aspect of your life. It has to affect your marriage if you're married. It's not my way or the highway. It's not separate lives. It's not power struggles. No, instead it's, it's mutual honoring love. As, as heirs of God's grace. If you're single, you know, it's not selfishness, it's not unmarried sex, it's not uh, I can do whatever I want. Instead, it's undistracted devotion to the Lord. You want to wake up every morning with your mind on Jesus. In your friendships, they should be transformed it shouldn't be manipulation or managing your reputation it should be love and it should be forgiveness if you're holding a grudge against someone just know that in Christ 20 year grudges aren't allowed you cannot go meet the lord with your hands around someone else's neck how about in your work it has to transform your work not doing the least possible for the biggest paycheck not throwing away your integrity or your convictions But instead, working as for the Lord, not as for men. How about in your digital media interactions? It's not being a bully, it's not showcasing yourself, it's not sneaking and looking at pornographic images. Instead, it's how can I glorify God and encourage others through this tool? How about if you're retired? It's not, well, now I have unlimited resources and I can have endless travel and do everything for myself and live for me. Instead, it's I'm going to serve God's purposes. Whatever stage of life I'm in, I'm going to serve others for the kingdom of God. How about in our church life? We love one another, but there should be no divisions then. As we grow in grace, we should make less distinctions. We should be more accepting of people. We need be fixed on the supremacy of Christ and the glory of the gospel and on evangelism and discipleship. But in everything we do as a church, the word needs to be central and, and point people to Christ, not works. And how about in your life? How about in your life? You know how Jesus said that really tough saying about how you need to die to yourself? I think sometimes we get some weird idea in our head that Jesus died for me to showcase myself jesus didn't die to showcase your selfishness jesus didn't die to cultivate your pride jesus didn't die to coddle your sin jesus didn't die to carry out your political economic or social cause he died to set you free so you'd rejoice in his immeasurable riches that you would be set free from enslaving sin, that you'd glorify him in your life. He died to give you his righteousness so that you would rest in him with deep love and humility. He died so that you would not live for this world, but for the one to come. Showcase Christ. Call on him. If you're a believer, that's ongoing dependence deeply love Jesus, be radically surrendered to Christ as a person who is gradually being transformed. Tim Keller tells what it's like to know a Christian. I think you'll relate. He says, it's like traveling in the mountains, and it's cloudy and raining, and the rain stops and the clouds part, and towering above you is this magnificent peak. But then the clouds roll in and it vanishes for a while. This is like your old self and your new self as a Christian. Your old self is crippled with anxieties, the need to prove yourself, bad habits you can't break, many sins, entrenched character flaws. And the new self is you liberated from your sins. Always a work in progress. And sometimes, the clouds of the old self make it almost invisible. At times, the clouds part and, and you see the wisdom and the love and the courage of which you are capable in Christ. A glimpse of where you're growing. And then you look at a fellow Christian. Maybe, maybe it's a, a Christian who is a, your spouse or, or a child or a friend in Christ or even a, a difficult person in your life. And, and you, you take a glimpse at them and you see a glimpse of the person that God is remaking. And you say, I see who God is making you to be. I'm with you on your journey to his throne. And one day, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I saw glimpses on earth. Look at you. You're radiant. See, when God is finished with us, we will bear the weight of glory. It's the amazingness of grace. And it will happen someday. Just not yet. Let's pray together. Lord, there will be a day where we will be fully glorified with you. And today, we're just slugging it out on earth and we're struggling with our sin. And sometimes we're struggling to keep the faith and to persevere. But thank you, Lord Jesus, author and perfecter of our faith, that you are always with us. We know our sin brings us shame, but thank you, Jesus, for giving us salvation. Thank you that there is hope for whoever believes in Christ. Thank you that you grant your riches to all who call on you. Thank you, Lord, that whoever will call on you will be saved. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.